we wanted to go deep dive on a whole series of questions around Palestine and the Middle East, um, and also to talk uh, a little about your new book. And given that you've been kind enough to give some of your time to come on, um, here it is. If you haven't bought it, I highly recommend it. I've, I've been busy reading it for the past couple of days, and I haven't been able to put it down. Uh, Professor uh, Rashid Khalidi uh, is a Palestinian-American historian, uh, and he's uh, uh, based at the, he's the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University in New York. Uh, he's the author of a series of uh, acclaimed books, including the one we've just talked about. Uh, I'm Mark Seddon. Uh, I'm uh, the former UN correspondent for Al Jazeera Television. I used to work for the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, as a communications advisor, and last year for the President of the General Assembly, uh, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. That's me, but far more importantly, Professor Khalidi. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I mentioned your book. Uh, I've been reading it, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Also, particularly the powerful narrative that runs through it, which is essentially that of your own family's experience. This is what gives this book uh, something really rather different. Um, and you write quite candidly about what you describe as the creation of a settler state in Palestinian lands. And I just wondered if you could just begin by telling us something of, of what, in effect, this has really meant to, to, to your family over the mm -hmm. decades. What, is, what has been your family's experience of, uh, of a settler state? Well, I, I, in this book, I'm doing something very different from anything I'd done in my previous writings. And I, as you say, I, I, I tried to be, I tried to use a personal perspective. I tried to talk about experiences uh, that members of my family and some other families uh, went through as a means of illustrating the thesis of the book, um, which is that this is not a tragic struggle between two peoples, each, you know, right versus right, but rather it's been a, a, a one-sided war against the Palestinian people to establish this, this foreign colonial settler state in their midst. Uh, I also argue that Zionism developed into a national movement like other settler colonial projects, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, a nation state was established, a people was established. So it's a national movement at the same time as it's a settler colonial movement. And what I was doing in this book that's different, I hope, from what others have tried to do using this paradigm is to show through my own personal experiences, experiences of members of my family, things that have been related to me, and papers that I found in family archives that show different stages of this war. I mean, I was quite interested because the the the, the discussion around the idea of a settler state. I mean, in in some respects, obviously the the historic Palestine was home to uh, to, to to Muslims, to Jews, to Christians. It wasn't mm -hmm. diaspora. Um, I, I assume when you talk about a settler state, you're talking about the uh, successive waves of people who have moved to uh, Israel-Palestine, if you like, in the, in, in the succeeding generations. I mean, Correct. That's, that's, that is what you mean, isn't it? Correct. I mean, there's obviously an indigenous population of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in Palestine historically, um, going way back. Um, but what I'm talking about is the Zionist project. What I'm talking about is the project to establish a nation state for the Jewish people in Palestine at the expense of, and in effect replacing, the indigenous population and denying their national rights and 
up until 1948, they were a majority of the population. Uh, by the UN Charter, they should have had the right of self-determination. Instead, um, a, a Jewish state was established in most of Palestine as a result of the 1948 war. So that's one of the wars that I talk about. I talk about uh, several phases of this war on Palestine, and that's one of them. But tell us, if you will, because you talk about your uh, antecedents, your your ancestors, um, who lived in a very different uh, climate and uh, different times, different country. Um, for a lot of people who have little historical knowledge, I mean, tell us what, uh, if you can, what their experience might have been at a time when uh, Palestine was essentially um, a, a, an area where people coexisted uh, without Precisely. a of a, of a settler state. Precisely. Um, I actually start the book with a, a story about my great, great, great uncle, um, a man named Yusuf Dia al-Khaldi, who uh, had at an earlier, earlier stage of his life had been mayor of Jerusalem several times. He, in fact, had been deputy for Jerusalem in the first Ottoman parliament of 1877-78. Um, and so he was a person who uh, was part of the society that you're talking about, in which Jews, Muslims, and Arabs, uh, sorry, Jews, Christians, and Muslims uh, lived in relative harmony, um, and in which the idea of nationality was only beginning to, to develop. Uh, and I start the book by talking about a letter that he writes to Theodor Herzl. He knew of Herzl from having lived many, many years in Austria. He taught at the university there at a, one stage. He had been an Ottoman diplomat at another stage. And so he knew of Herzl. And his letter evinces his great respect for Herzl. And in fact, for the Zionist idea in principle, because he talks about the persecution of Jews. He, he, he's, he's quite understanding in this seven, eight page uh, letter in French to Herzl uh, about the causes that drive people to, to, to support the Zionist movement. But he said, for God's sakes, don't do this in Palestine. This is a country with a population that will not accept to be superseded. Um, and so I think that he represents that generation that you're talking about that lived, as it were, before uh, modern political Zionism, before nationalism, for that matter, Palestinian or 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 Jewish, uh, in the in the 19th century. So the letter he wrote in 1899 is sort of a harbinger, a warning of what is to come, and of course it's ignored by Herzl. Well, look, Professor Khalid, before we go any further, I'll, I'll just take a few uh, comments um, and and a question that have they've been beginning to come in. Um, Dennis Corthoerso uh, is very much looking forward to this. Thanks. We have a question which kind of also leads on um, indirectly from what you were talking about then to where we are now. This is mm -hmm. a question, I believe, yes, it is from um, from Dennis. Uh, and the question is, what is the impact on the debate about the future of Palestine of the continuing suspension from the Labour Party of Jewish and non-Jewish activists opposed to Israeli colonization of the territories? I mean, yeah. I'm unaware of that. A lot of people will be unaware of that uh, that happening. But uh, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, uh, anyone who's followed um, the activism that many people have engaged in around Palestine, whether in the United States or the UK or Germany or France, for that matter, will know that there is a ferocious campaign to brand as anti-Semitic anyone who criticizes Israel, anyone who argues for Palestinian rights. We have an identical campaign with exactly the same themes exactly the same slogans, exactly the same money, organizations, legal strategies, and so on uh, behind it in the United States. It is not a UK uh, a phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. Um, the struggle for Palestinian rights has united mainly grassroots organizations. And in response, um, the, the state of Israel, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs headed by a man named Gilad Erdan, 
um, and various powerful groups in the United States, APAC and its, its spin-offs, um, a, a very large number, in fact, of organizations are devoted to combating any mention of Palestine, any discussion of Palestine, any criticism of Israel using the canard, using the lie that any such criticism is anti-Semitic. Um, there must be some anti-Semites among critics of Israel. But the idea in, a, in, a, in an era in which real murderous anti-Semitism exists on the right and synagogues are attacked and firebombed by white supremacists, uh, people are murdered, uh, that the real problem of anti-Semitism is amongst uh, grassroots groups that criticize Israel is it's obscene. It's, it's a disgusting uh, attempt to cover up uh, for things that people who support Israel simply don't want to have discussed. And I think that's what's happened broadly in, in the United Kingdom. It's, it's what is happening also in the United States and for that matter in Germany. Yes, well, I mean, obviously, we're going to be discussing Palestine. That's why we're here. And uh, right. we welcome opinions for wherever they come. Um, we don't brook uh, racism, anti-Semitism of any sort, but that won't stop us from trying to tackle some of these serious issues, which um, many people are slightly concerned about, and I suppose this is my next question to you, uh, have become somewhat buried by uh, uh, the coverage of the pandemic, for instance. Do right. you, it's not just in the case of uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, but elsewhere too, but do you think specifically with Israel-Palestine, this is a time when um, governments can get away with things that they might normally find a little bit more difficult to get away with? Well, I think that the current drive of the Netanyahu government with the connivance of the Trump administration for annexation of all or most of the West Bank is an example of exactly what you're talking about. I think they're hoping to use the, the, the genuine concern everybody has, the overwhelming concern everyone has with this global pandemic, which has affected five, five million people are sick or have been sick. Uh, hundreds of thousands have died. So it's perfectly reasonable that people would be focused on that and and that this and that and that people like Netanyahu and Trump might might want to take advantage of this and I think that that is precisely what's happening. I mean Professor Khalid in reading your book I was uh, the hundred years war on Palestine um, which we were talking about earlier I was quite struck by uh, the fact that you are also critical of uh, some of the uh, of, of, of Hamas and Fatah in their lack of effectiveness, if you like. I mean, at one stage in the book, you argue that both the boycott, divest and sanctions movement and, and student groups have possibly done more to advance the Palestinian cause in recent years than Fatah and Hamas. Um, right. But I, just, I wonder if you might just elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I mean, this is a book about a war on Palestine. Um, and it's a book about uh, the imperial connections to the Zionist movement, but it's also a book about resistance, uh, Palestinian resistance. Uh, and in talking about that, I'm both, uh, I'm both, I both stress some of the victories, some of the successes of the Palestinian national movement and of its supporters, but also the failures. And I think that what you're referring to, uh, in fact, is one of the great failures. The Palestinian national movement is now divided, disorganized, I would argue rudderless, has no strategy. Uh, the two factions are much more concerned, Fatah and Hamas, with self-preservation uh, than advancing the Palestinian national interest. The very fact that they're not able to agree is proof of what I'm saying. Had they any national sentiment, they would, they would bury their differences in the face of a much stronger enemy and in a very critical situation and figure out a way 
uh, to unify Palestinian ranks. They haven't done that. And that's, to my way, a condemnation of them, which, which they'll never escape. Uh, it's, a, it's a historic failure on, on the part of both. Um, and I've, I, I talk in the book about other failures. Uh, I think that, that the PLO had some successes, important successes, but it also had failures. And I talk about the failures of, and the successes of leaderships, Palestinian leaderships in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So that is that is a, a thread, I think you're right in identifying uh, it, that runs through the book. I mean, you, you and I are both old enough to, re to remember apartheid uh, South Africa, also the uh, uh, it's then neighbors, which was known as Southern Rhodesia before Zimbabwe, where land was partitioned in a similar way uh, between black and white, uh, with the white minority getting the best land um, in both countries. Uh, right. In, in South Africa, the system uh, was uh, legalized uh, into a system uh, of apartheid. Um, now, or separate development, that's what it was called, as you know. Now, right. Some some critics of uh, the Israeli occupation are saying, actually, there isn't much difference between what happened in South Africa and what Israel is doing um, in the Palestinian territories. Now, do you think that's a is a fair comparison to make? I mean, you can see that there is uh, there are borders, there are walls, there are there is a kind of a separate development. But is it, is it legislated in the same way? I mean, is it fair to no. make this comparison? No, it's not legislated in the same way. It's legislated quite differently. So I, I, I certainly agree that there are important comparisons that should be made between Israel and other settler colonial projects. Each one, however, is quite different. Um, and I think that there are important comparisons to be made with South Africa. There are important comparisons to be made with North America or Australasia or Rhodesia or Algeria or many other settler colonies. So. I, I have no problem with the comparison, but to say that they're identical or that the legal structures are the same is in fact incorrect. They're not identical by any means. Um, Zionism did not succeed um, in doing what the settler colonial projects in North America, Australia, and New Zealand did, which is to either destroy or completely subjugate uh, the population mm -hmm. and, and, and install an overwhelming white majority. Uh, that hasn't happened in Palestine. The European settlers uh, were a minority right up to 1948, and even after driving out more than half of the Palestinians during what Palestinians called the Nakba uh, during the war of 1948, uh, today, even in spite of that, today we have an Arab majority between the river and the sea in Palestine. In yeah, Palestine is, is that really what? It, it, oh, it's a different. So it's a different yeah. case, in other words. Yeah, whereas in South Africa, you had another set of, of, of sure. conditions. Sorry. But essentially, where, where minorities have uh, decided to. Uh, compromise to, to, to be realistic, as the Afrikaners arguably were in South Africa, um, there has been a, a, a new settlement. There was There is Precisely. a democracy in South Africa. It's a, it's it's a non-racial uh, democracy. Uh, you know, this is uh, the power of a good example, where perhaps they didn't, and you, you just mentioned there, the French colony in Algeria, the uh, Portuguese in Angola. Well, it was a right. very different outcome. Right. Well, I, 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 I mentioned in the book that there are three possible outcomes for this kind of a, 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 a settler colonial case. One is the subjugation or elimination of the native populations. Uh, that didn't happen in South Africa. It hasn't happened in Palestine. Um, the Palestinians are still resisting, is my point, in Palestine. Another is the defeat and expulsion of the settlers, which happened in Algeria and a few other places. That's also very rare. And it's almost both of those, I would argue, outcomes are almost inconceivable in the 21st century. 
And the last and the, the, the most optimistic and hopeful is the one you point to in, in South Africa, which is uh, 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 somehow overcoming uh, the, 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 the legacy of, in, this, in the case of South Africa, white supremacy. And in the case of, of, of Palestine, Israel, uh, uh, overcoming the legacy of the domination of one people by another and the establishment of a whole series of laws and structures which privilege one people at the expense of another. Um, that could be done. It's not going to be easy to do. Oh, God, heaven knows. Uh, but um, as, you, as you point out, it is, it is an example that we can draw from. A couple of questions that have come in. This one is from the uh, Reverend Carol Sims. Um, do you know the do you, I beg your pardon? Do you think the annexation uh, will proceed? To which she refers to the plans for the uh, by the Netanyahu government to take thirty percent of the uh, of the of the West Bank, uh, or is there any way to stop Israel from taking over the Palestinian territories? Yeah, um, I don't know if it'll proceed. Uh, it looks like it might. Is there a way to stop it? Of course, there's a way to stop it. Were there to be a serious response from Europe. I don't think you can expect that from the United States, not under Trump and not for that matter, in my view, after January, should he be elected under Biden. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, uh, that, that the kind of, of serious, practical, biting, harsh measures will be taken by the United States. Europe could do that. Will it? I doubt it, but it could. Mm -hmm. uh, if Israel realizes it will suffer in terms of material benefits that it obtains from its enormously important relationship with Europe, I think there would be second thoughts in Israel. If I could also mm -hmm. uh, ask you, really, this, you know, to ask you, in fact, you're based in the United States, you're based at uh, the University, Columbia University in New York, um, and it's a country, of course, that boasts a very special relationship with Israel. Uh, and a country where it's actually quite difficult very often to advance the arguments for the rights of the Palestinians. So I wonder if you could tell us something about, you know, what it is like for people such as yourselves who are advocates of the Palestinian cause, um, when you have a, a, a media and a, certainly a, 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 you know, politics that really uh, is, is, not very, um, is not very friendly. Right. Well, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, uh, we are operating in an unfriendly environment, as you as you point out. Uh, certainly, the mainstream corporate media is uh, highly biased in favor of Israel. That's changing; it's changed somewhat, but nevertheless. And certainly, the political system is stacked against Palestinian rights. Um, the Republican Party is completely in the grip uh, of a, a a a base that is fervently pro-Israel. Evangelicals, Southerners a people for whom Israel is very, very important. Um, and it has multiple major donors, uh, people like Sheldon Adelson, who donated more to Trump than anybody else in the world, um, whose only issue is Israel. Uh, so the Republican Party is solidly, it, it's to the right of Netanyahu, if I, can, if I can say that. The Democratic Party is a little bit different. And there, there actually is a bit of hope because at the base of the Democratic Party, you have a coalition, which in fact, in some respects is quite favorable to being open-minded on the issue of Palestine. Um, and it includes a, a range of individuals, mainly young people, minorities, um, liberal Protestant churches, and so on. Um, and you secondly have on, on the positive side, uh, important movement on American campuses where there's an open, vigorous debate. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I mentioned this in the book, Golda Meir came to Yale 
mm -hmm. where I was a student. There were hundreds of people in support of her, and there were four of us demonstrating against her. Uh, and that about summed up the balance in the United States in the 60s, the 70s, and into the 80s. That's not the case anymore on American college campuses. Um, supporters of Palestine are sometimes more numerous on many American campuses. They pass resolutions in favor of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, Brown University, uh, uh, at Columbia, uh, and so on and so forth, many other schools uh, in the United States. So there has been a change, and there is a change at the base of the Democratic Party. The problem is the, the established leadership of that party uh, is as pro-Israel as, as it's ever been. Um, so the Bidens, the, the Obamas, the Clintons, the Schumers, the Pelosi's uh, are fervently supportive uh, of Israel. And this is a problem that is going to be very difficult to overcome. But I, I will add uh, that a grassroots movement in the United States, mainly led by students with almost no money and almost no external, no external support, certainly, is facing almost on a basis of equality, one of the most well-financed so-called campus movements uh, uh, in support of Israel and intended to suppress uh, groups like Students for Justice in Palestine or Jewish Voice for Peace or, or, or other advocacy for BD, BDS. Uh, and they're not succeeding uh, in spite of their advantages uh, uh, in terms of money, legal advice, uh, and the laws that they've managed to pass in a number of states. Yes, I mean, the, you can see that there's this uh, this change, uh, especially amongst a lot of young people, uh, a lot right. of young activists, universities, uh, a, a Democratic Party at the grassroots level. Uh, Bernie Sanders, when uh, he was uh, the front runner as candidate, um, and we've we, we've seen a bit of rowing back from uh, candidate Biden from some of the. Uh, uh, Trump, uh, Trump plans and his deal of the century. Yes, we, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> we should get on to that. But I, mean, I think what a lot of people looking in from outside wonder about, you know, they forget this Trump administration, for instance, but looking at successive US uh, administrations who uh, have always said that they support uh, a peace process. They've always said that they well, not always, but they've moved behind the uh, long-held UN view of uh, a two-state solution. Even now, that looks right. very, very frayed. All of these things, they have always had the power, uh, many people would argue, to actually see the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians reach a permanent uh, agreement. They could use their economic and military muscle in terms of trade, um, but they never have. Right. Really? So why is that? Well, I argue in this book, and I've argued elsewhere, that the United States has actually systematically undermined any possibility of peace in Palestine. Uh, the United States was extremely active where it saw its national interests were at stake in bringing about peace between Egypt and Israel, Jordan. But in this case, it's put its fat thumb on the scale uh, on the Israeli side. Israel was already dominant. The United States made it even more dominant. Um, and the reason for that, I would argue, is, is multi there are multiple reasons. One is the support that you mentioned, the broad-based support among many Americans for Israel. Um, the canard that this is the only democracy in the Middle East. There are three or four or five or six other countries that have democracy in the Middle East and which don't rule over a subject population without any rights, as Israel does. Um, and there are other reasons. Uh, one is that most American leaders have not seen since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, at least, have not seen Palestine as a vital national interest. Uh, Israel has been uh, treated 
uh, incredibly well by the United States on the issue of Palestine. And I point out in the book multiple cases where American presidents have seen that the U.S. national interest required a course that was anathema to Israel, and they've gone right ahead with that course. The most recent was President Obama's uh, uh, signing of an agreement with Iran, uh, which Israel fought tooth and nail. Netanyahu came and spoke twice before joint sessions of Congress, opposing a seated U.S. president to try and undermine his policy, and he failed. Uh, the United States rode roughshod over Israeli objections to this, and I, I mentioned five or six other cases in the book. So where vital national interests are seen to be uh, involved, American presidents have had no hesitation in stonewalling Israel, not, however, unfortunately, on Palestine. And, and of course, this current uh, president is is determined to do it his own way. He, he right. announced his deal of the century. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo flew uh, to the Middle East last week, despite the pandemic. Um, and uh, under discussion, we all imagine they were talking about the planned uh, July annexation uh, of whole sectors of occupied uh, territory in the West Bank. But do you get the impression that... Um, they are beginning to row back a little bit, even the, the Trump administration, that they are beginning to row back and that actually at the end of the day, uh, Netanyahu and Gantz won't go ahead with this? Uh, or do you think that actually the Israelis are looking at this thinking, well, they're not, they're, you know, the Europeans aren't going to do anything much as usual and we've got the support effectively of President Trump, let's just do it. And, and we've got a pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm not... I was not privy, to, none of us were privy to the discussions between Pompeo, Netanyahu, and Gantz when he visited Israel. Um, one does have the impression uh, that the administration has perhaps been influenced not so much by the feeble, disunited Europeans as by the reaction of Jordan and a few other Arab countries, mm. which seem to be saying, this is a bridge too far. This is going to take us to a place, these are unpopular, undemocratic, unrepresentative dictatorships and absolute monarchies. I'm talking about the countries of the Gulf, Egypt, and a few others. This is gonna take us to a place where our public opinion won't swallow it, where the Palestinians and their supporters are gonna be able to appeal over our heads to our public opinion. Please slow down. Uh, the most e extreme uh, uh, cry of help on this, uh, in this regard was, was from the King of Jordan, King Abdullah whose population is fundamentally opposed to the peace treaty, is fundamentally opposed to Israel's uh, very close security collaboration with Israel, and which probably will take the annexation very, very badly. And the king is most concerned with his own survival and the survival of his monarchy and his regime. Uh, and understandably, he's very, very worried about this. He's not the only one. Uh, I think Washington is getting those messages, and that may be why Pompeo is recommending uh, some modification of the plan. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Were the Europeans to weigh in seriously? I don't think it would well, affect Trump. Well, I mean, but it you, might affect the Israelis. I mean, we would have seen Professor Khalidi what the uh, what came out of the meeting of uh, former and current members of the uh, Security Council, EU members. Um, they they said they released a statement a couple of days ago saying in this vein, talking about the plans annexation, planned annexation. We note with great grave concern the provision to be submitted for approval by the Israeli cabinet on the annexation of parts of occupied Palestinian territories. I mean, you know, grave concern doesn't exactly frighten the horses, does it? No, 
Absolutely not. Rigid, unbreakable sanctions, punishments, withdrawal. Kick them out of Europe. Kick them out of the European European football. That would bother the Israelis. Uh, limit limit the uh, the biggest trading partner of Israel is the EU. Limit their trade with the EU. Say we're going to sanction you by thirty percent or whatever it may be in terms of trade. Now getting the EU to do this, given uh, the fifth column of Hungary and a few other Eastern European countries, which are blindly pro-Israel, would be very difficult. But there's nothing to stop 25 or 26 European states from saying, we'll do it on our own. There's nothing to stop Britain, France, Germany, whoever, uh, uh, Spain, Italy, Ireland, from saying, we're going to take this, this, and this sanctions. Hell with the EU. If Hungary vetoes, let Hungary you know, continue its kiss-kiss relationship with the Netanyahu government. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because uh, it the, the whole apple cart, if you like, could be completely tipped over by all of this, and people can't really predict what the outcomes could be. You've talked about them in your book in the broader sense. Uh, you've talked about the way that the Palestine, Palestinian cause unites opinion across the Arab world, but as we see, it unites people in many other parts of the world too. Uh, right. And it certainly wouldn't really suit people if this uh, annexation went ahead. Uh, and... Uh, right. Palestinian Authority collapsed. I mean, I, I just wanted to ask you, actually, the Palestinian Authority this week suspended all security arrangements um, that it has with the Israeli state under the Oslo Accords, uh, pa perhaps rather late. Um, I don't know how effective, but that's an important signal. It's though. late. It's late, but it's, do you think it's an important signal? I mean, this, this would worry people. It possibly would worry Israeli security um, experts, the military in Israel. Yeah. It would depend on how seriously the, this decision is implemented. If it really means the Palestinian security forces, for the first time in their history, protecting the Palestinians instead of protecting Israeli settlers and Israeli military forces and Israelis, um, and prevent, and if those forces were to stop Palestinians from demonstrating, uh, uh, if those forces were to stop handing people over or targeting people for arrest by the Israelis, obviously it would have an impact. Uh, if they simply sat in their barracks and did nothing, it would have an impact. There's no question. Uh, demonstrations are stopped by the Palestinian security forces long before they can reach uh, uh, any Israeli settlement or checkpoint or whatever. If those violent, if those, if those demonstrations were to be nonviolent, as an Israeli security official said, this would be a disaster for Israel. Mm. I mean, women and children marching to checkpoints or settlements in front of the cameras of the world would be a very difficult thing for Israel to put up with. One of the things I point out in the book is that there are some strategies that the Palestinians have adopted that have actually won them sympathy. And there are some periods from 1982 going forward, in fact, going back to the 60s and 70s, where the Palestinians did things that negatively affected their image or that positively affected their image. And this is a situation where there is a potential for positively affecting international public opinion. And I think the Israelis have every reason to be worried if, in fact, if, in fact, uh, these decisions are, are seriously implemented by the Palestinian Authority. Well, we have a question. I think it's from Fahid, um, and it follows on from what you've just been saying. You mentioned earlier about the, uh, uh, the, the population composition. Um, uh, he says, today the population between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean is about, uh, this is the Palestinian population. And the population overall is 14 million. But the Palestinian population is 3 million in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, 2 million in Gaza, and 2 million in Israel itself. 
what will what how does Israel plan to handle 50% of its population if it moves ahead with this uh, annexation well that's the $24,000 question that's exactly the right question to be asking uh and sane israelis rational israelis people who are not under the uh, under the uh, have not drunk the Kool-Aid of the greater land of Israel movement uh, or the settler movement um, understand that this is a that you cannot square that circle. You cannot claim to be a democracy where you rule over a, a majority population, most of whom have absolutely no rights whatsoever. Um, a subject population, you can call it whatever you want in Bantu stands and whatever you call it. Um, that is simply unsustainable given that Israel is completely dependent on Western liberal democracies, completely dependent in some respects, nuclear superpower, regional power, most powerful army in, the, in, in, in a very large part of the world, but very deeply dependent on Europe and the United States for crucial military, security, economic, and most important, diplomatic support. Israel would have sunk at the United Nations, but for the United States. I mean, you, my father was, my father worked for the UN Secretariat. You yourself worked for the Secretariat. You know that without the United States, Israel would be an international pariah. So on this and many other levels of $3.8 billion a year in military aid, uh, uh, the EU as its main trading partner, Israel is dependent on these liberal democracies. The, 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 the situation where more than half the population are helots or, or without rights or whatever you want to say is unsustainable for a country so dependent on Western liberal democracies. Now, for China, for Modi's India, for Russia, that's not a problem. They're not liberal democracy, or India is moving away from liberal democracy. China and Russia never were. Uh, so uh, Israel can get away with this in, in, in terms of Orban's Hungary or Bolsonaro's Brazil, but cannot in the long run get away with it as long as people know these facts. Now, that's why they're fighting so hard against movements for Palestinian rights in the UK and Germany and France and the United States, because getting these facts out makes Israel vulnerable. I mean, given that um, uh, most, most people looking in uh, and most people who have been actively involved um, can see really that the people of the peace accords are, are frayed to the point of almost destruction, that the uh, two-state solution, which is, of course, the uh, view of the General Assembly of the United Nations, the global community support this. Some countries pay lip service to it, pay lip service to it, others support it. But if this annexation goes ahead, this really sends a, a, a missile right through, a torpedo right through this idea of a, of a two-state two solution. Uh, and so we come to, um, inevitably, what a lot of people have been arguing for a long time as a realistic proposition to try and get the international community to adopt uh, is that of a, a one-state secular democratic solution. Um, but given that all you've said about um, autocracies and dictatorships, uh, don't you think this uh, this potential for a, for a second Arab Spring in the in the Palestinian territories, uh, although we've been hugely popular amongst uh, young activists and Democrats and progressives around the world, uh, will 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 frighten will frighten a lot of these countries. They don't, and also some of the countries you've just been talking to uh, talking about in the Middle East. They don't want a secular democratic one-state solution, do they? Right, right. Well, I I compare um, situation in the Middle East since 2011 to Europe in 1848, you have two capitals of reaction 
absolute monarchies that fought tooth and nail against democracy, representative government, constitutions, and parliaments. Uh, in those years, it was St. Petersburg and Vienna. Today, it's Abu Dhabi and Riyadh. They have fought tooth and nail against democracy in Egypt, in Yemen, in Syria, uh, uh, in, in other parts of the Arab world, uh, which underwent an upheaval in 2011. They are fighting tooth and nail in Iraq, in Algeria, in Lebanon, in Sudan, where that movement continues. Uh, there is a broad-based movement in favor of democracy all over the Arab world, which all the billions and all the spies of these and other countries have been unable to suppress. That will continue. But you're absolutely right. These governments and others, most of the governments in the Arab world, it's, it's a unique region in the world, the Arab countries. They have the highest proportion of unrepresentative governments. They have the only absolute monarchies. I mean, they make, these, these, these governments make Louis XIV and, and, <laughs> and, and King Charles the, 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 the first. Uh, look like Democrats. Uh, th 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 these are the most absolute monarchies in modern history, in, in history, I would argue. Uh, maybe going back to Genghis Khan and a few complete tyrants of, of, of earlier days. Uh, but these people will fight with every dinar and shekel and, 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 and real that they have uh, to stop democracy. It hasn't stopped. I mean, you can see in the Sudan, you can see in Algeria, you can see in the streets of Beirut, you can see in, in Baghdad that the democracy movement has not been suppressed. So you're right, a, a any kind of democratic solution in Palestine or anywhere else is, is against the interests of these regimes. Uh, I don't think they can stop it, however. They, I mean, unfortunately, these regi regimes are sustained from the outside by multiple powers that are perfectly happy to have weak, autocratic, unrepresentative regimes dependent on them, whether the United States or Russia or China, they're perfectly happy with this status quo. They can yes, play, play in, this, in this playground there's, there's of, the of weak states. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, it, it could well have been that Pom Pompeo's mission was to really maintain the status quo uh, for all those reasons that you've mentioned. But I was also thinking, too, about the United States' oh. uh, um, right. almost a kind of self-appointed role as, uh, as mediator. I mean, back in the day when there was serious shuttle diplomacy, no doubt people would argue, well, of course, there was shuttle diplomacy uh, to try and get peace agreements off the ground. Um, but essentially, this was from a position of uh, great friendliness towards uh, Israel's greater aims. People might say that. But there was a time when the United States was seen by many as an honest broker. Um, clearly, the, 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 uh, the Trump's, deal, Trump's deal of the century uh, puts paid to <laughs> any idea of the United States being a mediator at this time, given that the Palestinians uh, and uh, the Arab world simply don't accept uh, this deal of the century of being any such thing. Right. So where, where does that actually, I wonder, just looking a bit further, beyond, um, um, I, let's say, just for the sake of argument, that Trump is re-elected in November, this America first policy continues, the policy in the Middle East uh, implodes, um, the United States effectively walks away. Given where the powers are shifting and given how global politics is is, is reshaping before our eyes, I mean, with a, a stronger, you mentioned earlier, India, China, these countries taking a much stronger international role, and at the United Nations, for instance, does do, do they end up having more of a say? Do they end up being the new mediators, the ones with the economic muscle to push for a proper and final peace agreement between Israel and Palestine? Well, I would say that, let me start by talking about the United States, and then I'll get to the core of your question. 
um, which is a really good one. Um, the United States has been a dishonest broker where Palestine is concerned. In mediating between Arab countries and Israel, however, where it saw its national interests as, as, as being served by being an honest broker, it enforced agreements on Israel that Israel was very unhappy with. The disengagement agreements of 1975-76 between Egypt and Israel and Syria and Israel. Uh, sorry, 1973-74-75 were, were things that the Israeli leadership fought against tooth and nail. We have the diplomatic documents. Kissinger imposed things on Israel that Israel didn't want for American national purposes. The United States wanted to win Egypt away from the Soviet Union. That was more important than any Israeli objection. You don't want to get out of Sinai? You're getting out of Sinai. Hell with you. So, yes, the United States served that role between Israel and the Arab states. It has never served that role where Palestine is concerned. It's not seen as a national, a vital interest. Um, will this change? That's your question. Um, Trump has put the United States more close, closer to the most extreme set of Israeli aims than any American president has ever done. The United States has allowed Israel to get away with things, has supported it in doing things, has, in my view, waged war together with Israel. 1982 war was an American-Israeli war in Lebanon, in my view. Um, but it has never adopted Israeli aims as its own, which it has now done. Uh, will this change if Trump is reelected? Heaven forbid. But should Trump be reelected, which he may well be, um, I think that you're, the evolution you're talking about is a possibility. That is to say, the United States is withdrawing, is weakening in its international uh, uh, role. I would argue it's still dominant and will continue to be for a very long time into the future. It will not be hegemonic as it was after the end of the Cold War. It will not be a, a unipolar world in the same way that it was after the demise of the Soviet Union. There are other powers. You can see this in the Middle East, Russia. Uh, to a, to a, to a, to a sm much smaller degree, China, are beginning to fill that space, Europe to a much smaller degree. I think that uh, that evolution will accelerate under a, a, a second Trump administration. I don't think we'll see it uh, fully affecting the Middle East or any other part of the world in three or four or five years. Uh, we're going to end the 21st century, I'm sure, with a, more, a, a less hegemonic United States. Uh, when and how, I, it's impossible to predict. And the impact on Palestine is very hard to predict because standing up to the United States over, over this issue, Palestine-Israel, um, is something that many countries are very afraid of doing. Major European powers are like, are like are, are extraordinarily cowardly where, where this, this comes. I've talked to French and British and other diplomats, and you know, they will tell you privately, yes, we, of course we realize that this is a terrible policy. Will your government do anything about it? Of course not. We have a, another question here, um, and this is it's a it's a more specific question, really. Uh, and it's uh, uh, it, here we are. We talk a lot about what Israel should or shouldn't do. President Abbas suggested going back to the Olmert deal of the mid two thousands, but didn't accept it then. Um, Arafat did not feel that his legacy would be honoured in accepting Ehud Barak's deal because of its ideological disconnect with the youth. Um, all things considered, shouldn't an election take place in Palestine? If Israel strikes a deal with the Palestinian Authority, are they really negotiating with Palestine? I think there are two questions there. Well, uh, to the second question, I would give uh, an unequivocal yes as an answer. Of course there should be elections. And of course you should have a representative Palestinian government, which you do not now have. Uh, this government is 14 years uh, past its cell date. The pre this this so-called president... In fact, he's not a president. He was elected in, 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 in uh, 14 years ago, in 2006. 
he has no legitimacy. Uh, in terms of Palestinian legal norms, this is not my view, this is constitutionally the fact. Uh, same is true for the Palestinian uh, Legislative Council, the, the, the elected body. Uh, neither Abbas, it should be mentioned, uh, nor the Palestinian legislators represent the Palestinians. They represent the people who elected them in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which is a, a small minority of Palestinians. Half of Palestinians live outside of Palestine. Another two million or so live inside Israel. They were never consulted. So a majority of Palestinians are not represented by the Palestinian Authority. Um, but yes, there should be, of course, a democratically elected Palestinian leadership to assent to any agreement or to dissent from any agreement. That's the first uh, response to the second part of the question. As far as the first part is concerned, uh, I would dispute the questioner's analysis of Barak or Olmert's proposals. In fact, Barak had lost his majority in the Knesset. What did his What did his offer represent? And how serious was it? And was it ever made to the Palestinians? It was not. Barak spoke to, 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 to Clinton, who spoke to the Palestinians. There was no formal written Israeli proposal at Camp David in 2000. Another canard. Uh, what he said exactly and what the Americans told the Palestinians is another matter. Uh, Aaron David Miller, who was there and has written an account of this, has said, we've always operated as Israel's lawyer. Did Israel's lawyer give the Palestinians exactly what Barak said? I don't know. Nobody knows except the people who were involved in massaging whatever Barak said uh, and, and, and transmitting it to Arafat. But we know several things about several of these Israeli proposals. One is Israel is not under any of these proposals granting the Palestinians absolute sovereignty. Sovereignty means control over your airspace, your water resources, your borders, your population control, imports and exports. Israel, in every proposal I've ever seen, maintains control over all those things. Therefore, statehood, sovereignty, self-determination, as any international lawyer would define them, has never been on offer, nor from Rabin, nor from Barak, nor from Olmert. And I think it's very important to think about that. Yes, they offered them this trinket. Yes, they offered them this inducement. Yes, they offered them these shiny beads. Was this statehood, sovereignty, self-determination, control over your borders, control over your population registry, permission to bring citizens into your country without limit? The United mm -hmm. States has a president who has campaigned on immigration control. European governments have come to power over immigration, control over immigration into their own sovereign country under any Israeli proposal, i.e. allowing Palestinians back without limit who were forced out by Israel or whose, whose ancestors were forced out by Israel. So what are we really talking about? I mean, one, one, one kind of sauce for the goose, one kind of sauce for the ganders. Israel can bring in anybody it wants, can control anything it wants in Palestine. The Palestinians have these limited set of rights and are supposed to uh, be satisfied with that. So I, 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 I challenge people who talk about missed opportunities uh, uh, by Palestinian leaderships. I, I've criticized Palestinian leaderships for their yes, failures, you, you, you but do, these you, are not their failures. You, you do. You're, 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 um, you're, you're very fair in your critiques, uh, and uh, nobody can accuse you of, of, of not being uh, critical where, where governments and uh, administrations have deserved it. I'm just wondering, um, from what you're saying, I mean, given the move to recognize Palestine as a state, many countries have now done so. Um, uh, many European countries have done so too. I mean, does that does that actually empower the Palestinians at all? Or is this, uh, I mean, is, is it just, this is a nice piece of solidarity which doesn't really or hasn't really meant anything practical? 
I, I have to say, I'll be very blunt about this. I think the Palestinian national movement made a terrible mistake in assuming that the Oslo Accords uh, involved a path to statehood and sovereignty. They did not. They were meant to block off that path permanently, uh, indefinitely into the future. That's what Israel intended. That's what the United States intended. That's what that's what uh, Oslo was. Uh, the fiction that a state was being built, a independent sovereign state by the Palestinian Authority is in my view very pernicious. It encourages the illusion that a Palestinian Authority completely subordinate to Israel and whose security forces are essentially doing the work of the Israeli security forces in suppressing the Palestinian population, in protecting settlers, in protecting the army of occupation, both of whom operate untrammeled throughout the Palestinian territories, is a pernicious, dangerous, harmful illusion. Now, having Palestine recognized is not a bad thing. The PLO got Palestine recognized in one form or another starting in the 1970s. That was a good thing. Palestine needs a national liberation movement. It does not need a fake authority or a, a quasi-state, which is in fact subordinate to and a sub-contractor of Israeli occupation. Israel had that in South Lebanon. It had the South Lebanon army. It wasn't Lebanese. It wasn't Southern. It was Israeli. It was controlled by the Israeli government and military and security forces. And that's the, tra that's the case with the Palestinian Authority security forces. They do what they're told. Israeli military intelligence, by the Shabak, by the, and, and by the American intelligence services. They don't, they don't protect Palestinian security. Uh, people are shocked recently because the Palestinian security forces have actually been doing something to help the health of the Palestinian population. And people have said to me, this is the first time they've done anything for our security instead of the security of the settlers who take our land and the soldiers who oppress our people, uh, which is a, you know, a good thing. I'm not against that. I'm not against municipal self-government in the occupied territories. I'm against the illusion that this has anything to do with liberation or changing the status quo. It doesn't. It consecrates a status quo which is entirely favorable to Israel. The Palestinian Authority really has been a kind of local government association, from what you're saying. There's a, a, comment, a comment that's come in. I'll just read the comment. Uh, most U.S. This is from uh, somebody in the U.S. Most USA citizens do not know that Israel, after 70 years, doesn't have a constitution. I don't know if that's true or not, but that maybe this is the case. It is. It has it basic is. laws. Uh, but well, a bit like this country then as well, Britain. But uh, but the, what he makes the point he makes uh, is if we take the USA Constitution and would apply it to Israel, um, well, it would it, was, it would blow Israel to shreds. I don't think he means that literally, but essentially, uh, a, an American Constitution in Israel would essentially disarm. Uh, the, uh, the the governments from doing their worst. Um, so that's the that's the point he makes there. But I think we we are coming to the end of uh, today's uh, interview. And I just want, and this is a difficult one to to leave with you. But um, look ahead ten years and taking into account all that you said about the settler states and demographics, how can this end well? And how does it end badly if it doesn't end well? Well, in my view, it's ending badly. I mean, it, it is it is bad now, and it may well get worse. Uh, how it ends, I, I don't know, whether in 10 years or more than 10 years. Could it end well? Yes, it could end well. Uh, the A little bit of pressure from the United States and Europe would force Israel to make major changes. A little bit of unity and clarity and strategic vision on the part of the Palestinians uh, a, a bit of democratization in the Arab world would change everything. 
everything. Now, would that be enough to bring uh, uh, to bring us to a soft landing, uh, a la South Africa? I don't know. The the privilege, uh, the 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 haughtiness, the supremacy that Israelis have established uh, their in their treatment of the Palestinians is going to be very hard to overcome. Dismantling the structures of that supremacy, the legal structures. I mean. The, the, the questioner talked about the U.S. Constitution. Implement the American Bill of Rights in Israel. Implement the idea of equal, e equal rights under the law for everybody. The Palestinian citizens of the states of Israel do not have equal rights under the law in Israel. They vote. They have certain rights. Obviously, they're in a much better situation than Palestinians in the occupied territories. But the, the structure, the legal structure of Israel has dozens and dozens and dozens of overtly discriminatory laws. Dismantling that structure and the structures of domination over the occupied territories, whether you go towards a two-state or a multi-state or a one-state solution, dealing with those structures and those attitudes is not going to be very easy. It is possible, however, an evolution in the United States, some of which is already beginning. Uh, the majority party in the United States is the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party won 10 million more votes in the 2018 midterms for Congress and the Senate than did the Republican Party. If that, if that absolute majority of electors and won three million more votes in the 2016 presidential election than did the Republican Party. The Republican, the, the Republican Party is a minority party. It's a regional party. It's a party of older, whiter, more male electors. And that's a dwindling uh, demographic. As and when the Democratic Party uh, is able to win nationwide in a few elections, you will see a change because the mass base of the Democratic Party is infinitely more sympathetic uh, on the issue of Palestine than is either the leadership of the party or than is the, the mass base and the leadership of the Republican Party. That in and of itself is going to force major change. If it happens, it may or may not happen. I mean, the Republicans have managed to win election after election through gerrymandering, through vote su voter suppression, through control of the courts. That may well continue. If it doesn't, the current status quo in Israel is in trouble. If the Europeans ever get their act together, the status quo in Israel is in trouble. Uh, so I can see, I can see forces. If the Arab countries have a democratic transition, the status quo in Israel is in real trouble. I mean, you can go back to 1948 and see how Israel and the European powers in the United States played on the weaknesses of Arab regimes. Democratic governments are corrupt often, are weak often. Uh, can be played upon often, but the people have a choice and, 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 and an opportunity to express themselves in a way that under a, a, a military dictatorship like Egypt or an absolute uh, autocracy, as we have in most Gulf countries, with the exception of Kuwait, um, they can't. So those things could lead us to a better future. Will they? Allah well, uh, only God leave knows. It, leave it on an optimistic note, uh, and also with a couple of uh, final comments from uh, viewers from across the world. Um, uh, deep Dive Palestine, continue your great program. Please invite Dr. Mustafa Barghouti and another time, Dr. Ramsey Baroud. Uh, and we've also had this. Uh, thanks. This has been an interesting conversation. Looking forward to buying Professor Khalidi's book, which prompts me to raise it up again. This is the book. You must get it. If you've, been, <laughs> if you've enjoyed our conversation today uh, and are concerned about Palestine and want to learn more, here we are. That's the UK edition. <laughs> That's the US edition. Oh, here we are. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I should very much like to thank on behalf of uh, all of us here at Palestine Deep Vibe, all of you who have been viewing uh, Professor Rashid Khalidi um, and wish him all great success and hope that you can join us again. Good luck with your book. And uh, we're looking forward to the paperback sales and, a, and another launch uh, here in the UK so we can all come along. And hopefully, so am I. I had a wonderful time in the United Kingdom in February. I hope to do it again whenever travel is possible. And uh, thanks to all the viewers. I hope they all stay safe and well. Um, and thanks to you, uh, Mark, and to the Palestine Deep Dive team. Uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you.